Hello. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to the Weirdest Thing podcast. I am one of your hosts, Scotty Milder. Yes, and I am your other host, Amelia Amporo, and we're here to tell you about the weird stuff that we found on the internet. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which... As we've been doing for the last three years. (laughs) Yes, as we've been doing. Uh, I don't know if that was me. Sorry about that. Google is... I. This is going to be an interesting yep. show. <laughs> We've already yep. discussed all the things that could go wrong in this show. This is a little bit of like a chaos show. So yeah. We'll yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite worried about this. Um, it's fine. It's all going to be great. Okay. Um, okay so <laughs> should, we, should we go off to the races? I guess. Yeah. Let's just dive right on this. Let's in. just so I think- try to get through yeah. this did we give our names yeah we did give our names. we did we did okay. we said our names the name of the podcast and what we've been doing for the last three years right um right. also i do want to say by the time this episode comes out it will officially be spooky season mm-hmm. um or pumpkin spice season for those of you who practice mm-hmm. so happy spooky <laughs> season uh yeah. and i uh yeah i have a story to uh to go along with that yeah i think you're you're starting off so you ready Let's all right it. hold on to your butts okay of course <laughs> you know gonna start with a cold open mm-hmm. okay so on the evening of september 8th 1987 minnie winston who was a 78 year old atlanta woman discovered something deeply unsettling in her home located at 1114 Fountain Drive. Mm. What she found would go on to stump her, her husband, William, and the police. It remains an unsolved mystery even now. Mm. Today, I'm going to tell you about the Blood House of Atlanta. Okay, I'm sold. Yeah, let's do this. (laughs) Awesome. Sources for this are medium.com, truly adventurous, ranker, And to add some credibility, the New York Times, Mm. the Independent, National Geographic, the History Channel, and the CDC. I mean, we'll leave it up to you whether the New York Times really adds credibility. I mean, there were a lot of like paranormal investigation and Mm -hmm. like, you know, like ghost blog and it is true. Like when I have done stories where it's like all of my sources are either Wikipedia or just like ranker articles. Yeah. Those are the ones where I'm like, I mean, take it with a grain of salt. Take it with a grain of salt. I will say Wikipedia is not a source. I think this makes maybe the second story I've done Hmm. where Wikipedia is not a source at all. Um, Okay, so let's start at the beginning. So on September 8th, like I said, 1987, Mm -hmm. Minnie Winston uh, is taking a bath. She's relaxing after a long day. She cares for her husband, William. Willie. Um, he's ill. Mm-hmm. He's hooked up to a dialysis machine. You said they're in like their 70s, right? Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. 78, and I think he might be like 80. Mm, okay. So he's ill. He's uh, you know, in his bed all day because he's hooked up to this dialysis machine. So she takes a bath at the end of a long day to relax. And when she steps out of the tub, she feels something sticky on her mm. toe. Mm. 
She looks down at the floor and sees what appears to be blood seeping up from between the tiles in the bathroom. Mm. And she said at first that she wasn't scared because she didn't know, like, she was like, what the, what the hell is this? But when she looked closer, she was like, that looks like blood. Yeah. So she immediately gets worried um, that Willie has hurt himself sure. somehow. Sure. So she steps into the hallway. She's going to go to the bedroom to make sure that Willie's okay. She steps into the hallway and it's chaos. The walls are smeared with blood. Mm. Blood is what appears to be blood. This blood-like substance is collecting along the baseboards. Mm. She finds a quarter and silver dollar sized droplets. And then this liquid begins to spray out from the wooden floorboards like a sprinkler. What? Yes. So Minnie goes through this like hallway of hell. She finally makes it to her bedroom and she finds Willie uninjured and fine. And Mm -hmm. she says, she says, quote, to come look at all this red stuff coming out of the floor. (laughs) I mean, this literally just sounds like the evil dead. It sounds like a nightmare. Right. And like, okay, the blood in the bathroom. Over the top. Like, it's not just like who's spooky, scary. It's like over the the top. The sprinkler, the sprinkler sends it to another level. Right. Yeah. So she gets to the bedroom. She's like, come look at all this red stuff (laughs) that's coming out of the floor. And they start to like look around the home that they've lived in for 22 Mm -hmm. years. And they find blood in the hallway, in the kitchen, in all of the bedrooms, except the room that Minnie and Willie slept in, in the living room, in the basement, and in the crawl spaces in the basement, which are like basically inaccessible. There's blood everywhere. Yeah. So at first they're like maybe like a rat or a raccoon is injured <laughs> and has been like traipsing around the house. Look, you're trying, you just saw like little fountains coming out of your floor, but you're trying to come up with the like rational, right, like, maybe it's ha- a raccoon. Right. There has to be a rational explanation right. for this. Right. So they look around and they can't find anything. And at that point they're like, well, I guess let's call 911. Yeah. So they call 911 and they're like, hi, there's blood all over our home. And the fire department is like, what? And so, well, <laughs> like 911 is like, what? And the, they call the fire department and the fire department is like, I don't, we don't. Oh, what? Yeah. yeah. And so the fire department calls the police. Mm-hmm. Okay. The phone rings in the Atlanta police department's homicide department. And the detective who answered the phone tells the colleagues that an elderly woman had phoned the fire department and it said blood was everywhere, but there was no body. Mm-hmm. Okay. So dispatchers like didn't yeah. exactly know what to do. So they just like sent everybody. They sent police, right. they sent EMTs, lab techs, they sent everybody. The, even the Winston's property managers, it was a father and son duo, they came out to investigate because they mm. were like, what the fuck? They thought maybe maybe like a pipe had burst, right? And it was like right. rust or sure. something, right? That was like leaking through. The detectives question Minnie and Willie while the EMTs like look them over to make sure that neither of them are injured and like therefore the source of the blood, neither had a scratch on them. Mm-hmm. They check like Willie's dialysis machine, like maybe some things happening there. Nope. Mm -hmm. Everything's in perfect working order. The Winstons were asked if their doors had been locked. Yes, they replied. And their alarm had been set that night. Mm. Brenda, a woman named Brenda Dipple. She's a lab tech for the Atlanta PD. Side note, she's originally from Texas and she got her degree at New Mexico State. She 
is the lab tech on the scene that night. Mm -hmm. And she shows up ready to be like an invisible force like lab techs usually are, right? Like they go into like collect and document evidence. Right. So she shows up and immediately she's like, something's off here. Mm -hmm. She goes around like meticulously collecting evidence. She takes photos of the red substance. She collects samples to be tested in the lab. Mm -hmm. And before she went down into the basement, she commented to a detective, this house gives me the creeps. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> fair. <laughs> fair, right? The officers on site were like, oh, there's not a ghost in here and blah, blah, blah. And she was yeah. like, okay, well. I mean, it's either that or demons. So. There's a blood mm -hmm. sprinkler in the hallway. So, right. you know. <laughs> But yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. But like I said, there's no body. There's no injuries on Minnie or on Willie. And like, so most of the responders were ready for the, you know, the the red liquid to be rust, like I said, or they were like, maybe it's like paint or sure. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's something. Everybody's like, this is going to be something that is easily explained. Right. I okay? mean, the rust thing seems like not Plausible. entirely implausible. Yeah. Well, Brenda gathers all of her samples sends them back to the labs and is like, hey, you know, put a rush on it. Mm -hmm. So the results came back quick. Mm -hmm. The liquid was blood. It is blood. Mm -hmm. It was human blood. Okay, so even better. <laughs> <laughs> and it was type O human blood. Minnie and Willie were both type A. Mm. This is, so. And this is like, okay, and this may be not something you did the research for, but is type O like one of the like weird blood types that's like a universal blood type or something? So type O, type O positive is the most common blood type. Okay, maybe that's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Type O negative is the universal donor. Okay. Okay. Type O positive can be given to any of the other positive blood types. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's a, it's a quote unquote universal donor for the positive types. O negative is anybody can get O negative. Mm -hmm. Anybody. Right. Okay. But like I said, Minnie and Willie are both type A. So yeah, when either way, it's not from them. It's yeah, it's not their blood. Right. So of course, news of the Atlanta blood house starts to make headlines all over the world. The New York mm -hmm. Times reported on it like a couple of days later, I think on like maybe like September 11th of 87. And it's basically like blood coming. I think I think the headline was actually like substance found in home found to be blood or something mm -hmm. like that. Like it's a small article, but the New York Times talks about it. Newspapers mm -hmm. as far away as Saudi Arabia wow. were wow. posting stories about it. So reporters are constantly outside the Winston's house. They're calling they're trying to get interviews they're like banging on the door at all hours of the night to try to get to talk to the winston's paranormal researchers and mm. theorists start getting in on the game and they are reaching out to like the police trying to get access to uh to the winston's into their home to investigate right minnie and willie didn't want anything to do with this mm -hmm. they were like we like this is why we even hesitated to call 911 because like we didn't want a big right. like a big fuss right mm -hmm. well they're like old and sick and like, yeah yeah of course like i said willie is bedridden he's on dialysis minnie's left to tend for him she has to deal with all of these reporters and these police and these paranormal weirdos mm -hmm. and she she talks about like 
she's lost sleep due to the phone calls and visits from the journalists. Like Mm -hmm. she's like, I don't, I don't, we don't want this. We don't want to deal with this. The paranormal folks called the Atlanta PD over and over because they were certain that something malevolent was in the house. They were like, there's a demon that's causing the disruption. Mm -hmm. There's something. They swore that the Atlanta PD was in over their heads because basically they were saying like police deal with the known. And this is clearly a case of the unknown. And that seems like not wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, this is a thing where it's like, I mean, yeah, they're not, they're not wrong. Right. (laughs) So all of this is going on. The police and, you know, they get the samples back from the lab. They find out that it is in fact blood, but like they're stuck. There's Mm. again, there is no body. There is no evidence of a crime committed. There are no suspects. There's like nothing except the blood at 1114 Fountain Drive. And it's like a lot of blood. It's a fair amount. <clears throat> I mean, it's from in like cross my and shit, like yeah. yeah, and I mean, like I saw differing things and differing articles that it was like you know that it had formed like a lake in the hallway <laughs> and that it right. was you know that it was dripping down the walls and stuff. Um, I will say clearly there were pictures taken. I, this is this is going to be a lean episode in terms of images because mm. I could not find anything that was like verifiably a picture of the interior. Of oh, the house. okay. So there's that. So all of this is going on. And of course, after a few weeks, because there is no nothing, there's there's no leads on this case. Mm-hmm. The police start to distance themselves from the investigation. Right. You know, and they start uh, like it starts to be a lot of like, oh, well, this and these people aren't doing this. And the blood labs are like not giving us all of the information, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. They start to put out the message that there are more important crimes to solve in Atlanta, that there are actual crimes to solve in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. An Atlanta PD spokesperson said, quote, until such time we have determined a crime was committed, it doesn't merit a whole group of investigators working on it. Mm. Rumors, some of them aided by the Atlanta Police Department, begin to swirl. Stuff starts going around like, well, maybe the Winstons were part of some like sacrificial or like ritualistic religion. Maybe Mm. gang related weapon had been hidden in the house. Maybe like the whole thing was a hoax. You know, the Winstons were elderly. They had adult children. Maybe Mm. they did this as a cry for attention, either from their children or from the general public. Maybe their daughter, who was a nurse, had gotten her hands on some blood and Mm. had tossed it around the house in an effort to have her parents declared mentally incompetent so that she could take over her finance their or their finances Mm. eventually the news cycle and the police moved on to other things yeah so what the fuck happened (laughs) okay now usually when we do a story like this on the podcast, it is generally like we give the story and then we're and then we essentially debunk it, right? That right. it's like, okay, but here's here's all of the very, very plausible things that could have led to this. <laughs> Seems like that's gonna be hard with this. This one. this is this story is the opposite. So like yeah. I'm actually going to debunk the, the debunk like the rational, yeah. Mm. explanations for this okay so we'll start at the beginning ritualistic slash sacrificial religion that's pretty racist minnie and willie were a black couple they lived in a black Mm. part of atlanta people are like voodoo or whatever yeah and that's a pretty like dog whistly thing to be like well maybe there was some 
ritualistic religious thing, which is like, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, I'm sure. So again, pretty racist. And the Winstons were, uh, they were known Methodists. Mm -hmm. They were active in their community. I mean, from what I understand of Methodists, like of all the Christian sects, Methodists seem like the least likely to be like a blood cult. Like they're it's like bake sales and like it's like as mainstream as you can get, basically. Yeah, pretty much. I feel like right, I feel like Methodists are sort of like religion light. Yeah. Like I think they go to church and stuff, but they're just sort of like toot tooting along. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean that's that with I mean. I mean that with all due respect. Um, <laughs> like Methodists seem pretty, pretty okay. Yeah, it's just, they've always seemed pretty chill. Like, yeah, lots of like, you know, like it seems like the like, you know, the like the community library is going to be like run by your local Methodist church. You know, it's like, yeah, just that kind of thing. Yeah, like the food drives and stuff are going to be run by like, you know, the local Methodist church. Right. So there's that. Um, a gang weapon, which again, like, racist. Yeah, well, and also a gang weapon. Like, well, and my thing is, is what, 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 what weapon can you think of <laughs> that would like have so much blood on it mm-hmm. that it could spread that amount throughout the entire house? Right. Well, and like, and but you don't actually find a weapon. You like, don't find a weapon. How could a gang member have gotten into the house when the Winstons had locked their doors and set their alarms at 930 in the evening? Mm-hmm. I will step into to remind you here that alarm companies keep track of when alarms are set and disarmed and mm-hmm. yeah no one was found in the house mm-hmm. like they didn't find anybody in the house they didn't find anybody in the basement in the crawl space they found no weapon they found nothing right so that's that debunked yeah that doesn't add up yeah a hoax perpetrated by the winstons for attention except that mm-hmm. they didn't want attention yeah you said that like right away yeah like Minnie was actively being like please leave like my husband is not well we're worried that if something happens to him we're not going to be able to get him out of the house mm-hmm. that like the emts aren't going to be able to get him because you guys are all here clogging up the street like we don't want this and even if it was a big hoax done for attention where the fuck did they get the blood well and that's where like and i know you're getting to it but like the one that you've listed that seems the most it doesn't seem seem plausible but i guess relatively speaking the most plausible is that this daughter was involved because yes a nurse would have access to stuff and i'm gonna get to that so okay again people were like they were like well maybe he came like you know i don't know he's on dialysis maybe he's been storing up a whole bunch of blood that has somehow turned into o blood i was gonna say except he's not the typo blood yeah. it doesn't it doesn't make sense okay and now to get to your point a mm-hmm. hoax pulled off by the winston's adult daughter the nurse like you said she has access to blood by nature of her job right mm-hmm. except this is 1987 we are at the height of the aids crisis mm-hmm. yeah Okay. Blood is one of a handful of body fluids that is known to transmit the virus. So hospitals and blood banks are not playing like fast and loose with their blood supplies. That stuff is cataloged. Yeah. Yeah, That stuff is cataloged. It is monitored. Someone would have noticed even a bag of O blood right. disappearing, especially right. since typo is the universal donor. It does that. So <laughs> like, it doesn't actually make sense either. 
It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Paranormal enthusiasts have wondered in the time that has passed since that September night in 1987, if maybe the blood was a physical manifestation of spiritual wounds. Mm -hmm. So Atlanta, we know Atlanta has a full and robust history of racism. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, General Sherman burned the damn thing to the ground in 1864. Right. Near the end of the Civil War, the Atlanta race massacre took place in 1906. Mm -hmm. The city, even though it had a majority black population, was still the site of racial inequity. Mm -hmm. You know, affluent white neighborhoods got all of the funding funneled into them, and the blue-collar black neighborhoods were essentially left to take care of themselves. Right. In fact... Nearly 40 years before the events of September 8th, 1987, the house itself was the site of another case of like racial inequity. Mm -hmm. So in late September of 1950, a man named Albert Thompson, he was a, he was a black man, like I said, living at 1114 Fountain Drive, mm -hmm. and he was the regional racial relations director of the Federal Housing Authority. So okay. he was doing what he could to like get right. black people access to fair housing, all of that stuff. Right. So he is driving one night and he gets T-boned by a truck driving in the southbound lane. The driver mm. of that truck was white. Thompson was severely injured in the crash. He's taken to the hospital. He's examined and he's sent home with serious injuries that included internal bleeding. Mm. Thompson would die on Halloween of that same year from his injuries. The driver that hit Thompson walked away from the ordeal with no injuries and a slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. okay. He got cited for, I think, like faulty brakes. Right. I mean, I think it would be like, like vehicular manslaughter now, right? Yeah, I mean, that's vehicular homicide, something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. But right. of course, 1950s, white driver, black right. victim, slap on the wrist. Fast forward and just days before the house on 1114 Fountain Drive started bleeding, mm. a white police officer shot and killed 19-year-old Lamar Montgomery just a half mile from the Winston's home. Mm. And like just barely a day after September 8th, Police shot 37-year-old Eddie Callahan outside of a housing project six times in the back. Ugh. In both cases, the police officers were either fired or suspended, but served no time for the murders of these black men. Okay. So actually, have, given the time period, I'm actually surprised they were even fired. Well, one of them was fired. I think the I think Lamar Montgomery's murderer was fired. The other police officers, and I think it was like six of them, the other police officers were suspended mm, so. and like I think moved to different departments. Right. So there are these theorists who are sort of like, well, you know, mm -hmm. we're talking about a town that has seen a lot of like racial violence <clears throat> and a lot of like black blood spilled in the streets. And mm. so maybe like that pain and that fear and that rage at all of these injustices converged into a nexus and literally bled out of the walls and cracks and floorboards of the house at 1114 Fountain Drive. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of stuff. The Truly Adventurous article goes into all of this in depth. It is a long read, but they talk a lot about like what blood means in mm -hmm. like cultures and in religions and, you know, talks about that, like, you know, the Israelites were given uh, <laughs> like a divine order against mm -hmm. drinking blood. Most cultures, um, most like non-Christian cultures have deities that are like blood deities and they're usually like war gods and mm -hmm. 
that kind of stuff. Like it's never like a good thing. Well, and then in Catholicism, we get all the stories of stigmata, which kind of goes, mm-hmm. which goes you, with the like psychic wound idea. Right. And you've got a lot of, there's a story of a bishop. It's like Januarius, I think, mm-hmm. who, he was like a third century bishop and he was going around and like helping and counseling Christian Christians and the Romans mm-hmm. found out and they were like, fuck this. And they decapitated him. And apparently mm-hmm. like since his death, like in the spots where he, where his, I think like ordeals took place like blood will just spring up from these spots Mm. there was like a stone basin that apparently the nurse who like handled his body after decapitation she rinsed her hands in this basin and apparently like as the anniversary of his death is approaching like that basin will just fill with blood Mm. there's lots of stories of like weeping virgins that are like weeping blood Mm -hmm. all that stuff like you said stigmata like there's a lot of like blood lore right in uh in like various world religions right so years later paranormal enthusiast was able to interview mini it was after Mm -hmm. all of this had settled down and stuff and he asked her he was like well what do you like what do you think this was and she was like it was rust it was rust and mud that had seeped out from a busted water heater in the basement Mm -hmm. and this paranormal enthusiast his name was kurt roulette he basically hypothesized that mini had convinced herself that the mm-hmm. blood that was tested and proven to say, be cause... human blood, that she had basically convinced herself that it wasn't blood because, like, how could she stay in the house otherwise? Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a thing, like, I know with, not to call out, like, my dad or anything, but, like... <laughs> Sorry, Marty. <laughs> Sorry, Marty. Like, I think of my dad as sort of this type of person. And like a lot of people I grew up with in Los Alamos, when you're like a very empirical type of person, you will do everything possible. You will come up with whatever explanation you need to, to make something rational. Right. You know, it's like, even if like, like, like you can't even accept the like, oh, it's just an unknown, like, we'll never understand it kind of thing. You can't even accept that it's unknown. It's like, no, there has to be an explanation. So, I, you know, I don't care. I'm going to, like, conveniently forget about the lab test. And it's like, no, it was rust. Like, you know. The interesting thing about this is that the night that it happened, mm-hmm. this happened around, like, 1130 at night. Right. The night that it happened, the detectives were questioning Minnie and Willie. And they were like, do you have you had any trouble with your eyesight? Like, have you maybe taken any medications? And Minnie was adamant. She was like, I know what I saw. Mm-hmm. I know what it was. You're not going to tell me otherwise. And it was really like in the aftermath that she was just like, I have to live in this house. Yeah, you you like back so, away from it. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and the thing is, it's like, I mean, I, I, I've just got to imagine in the moment blood, if you've been around like a lot of blood, it has a very particular smell mm-hmm. and rust has a very particular smell and they're mm-hmm. not the same smell. Like, they're yeah. Not particularly and I, similar. So like, I think I saw that somewhere. Maybe it was the lab tech, Brenda, who went on to become like an actual investigator uh, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. She's, she had a really wonderful career. She worked and did a lot of really wonderful things in her community in Atlanta but I think it may have been her that was like it, like you you would smell it like it was it was blood mm-hmm. yeah. you know I mean that's it's it's like you can't really mistake the smell of blood for something else because yeah. in quantity you know yeah yeah and like you know, Minnie had been a school teacher. I don't know if I saw anywhere what what Willie had done, but again, he was ill. He was better mm-hmm. 
and they didn't have the means to be like, okay, well, fuck it, we're leaving this weird blood house. Like, right? Because like, we're who, moving. Who are they going to sell it to? You know, who are they going to sell it to? Who are they like? Where like they don't have the money to go anywhere. I mean, you look, know? I will like live in some fucked up haunted places. Like, I'm not afraid of like being in a like haunted house or something. I'm not going to move into a fucking blood house. A blood house is a lot. That's a lot. It's- it's a it's a it's a level it's a level up from haunted house. commenters tell us listeners tell us if you would live in the blood house um <laughs> so i have no answer for what happened in in this house i there is no like explanation for it yeah. yeah we do know that this happened all of the police and all of that stuff saw it all the investigators all the journalists and stuff there was a bunch of witnesses. The substance was tested. It was, in fact, human blood. But mm-hmm. nobody ever came forward and was like, okay, sorry, it was me. And I, like, snuck in there and I was hiding, like, up in the fucking chimney or whatever. Nobody mm-hmm. ever came forward with an answer. Never found bodies. or Never found bodies. Never found nothing. Willie and Minnie Winston lived in that home for the rest of their lives. Willie ended up, uh, Willie passed away a few years after the ordeal and Minnie died in 2015 at the age of 104. Wow. From reports of folks close to the Winstons, the house at 1114 Fountain Drive never bled again. And that is the strange and spooky tale of the blood house of Atlanta. That's incredible. I'm actually, I'm fairly amazed that I've never heard of that. It was so... (laughs) This is, I guess I should have also cited a couple of Reddit threads for this because that's how I found out about it. I was cruising through, I think there's a subreddit that's called like creepy ask Reddit. And it basically collects all of the creepy questions that are asked Mm. on ask Reddit and pools it all in one, in one subreddit. And so somebody had been like, you know, what's the, like, what's the creepiest unsolved mystery that Mm -hmm. you know of? And the first comment was, it was like the black eyed children Mm -hmm. and the blood house of atlanta and Mm. i was like what the fuck is the blood house of atlanta (laughs) and then i looked it up and i was like yeah um (laughs) i've got to say like as the horror guy who does continually end up accidentally debunking things yeah i am always glad to come across the occasional story where like no there's just genuinely no explanation like yeah i mean there's just no explanation blood house. i'm gonna say I'm going to say the weirdest thing, believability scale. I've got to put the Blood House of Atlanta at like... It's like, I mean, it sounds like... It's like a 10. Blood came out of the walls. The thing is, there's like, it's it's a very like weirdly first mysterious as it is. Sounds like it's a very concrete series of events. Yeah. Like there's a house, a lot of blood came out of the walls and there was no source to the blood and it's human blood. It was tested human blood. Yeah. Like, Like there's not a lot of ambiguity to that. There's just no explanation for it. No, it's akin to that. I could, I don't remember what town it was. And I want to say it was like a town in like Kansas or Arkansas or like Missouri or something where like the blobs fell out of the sky. Oh, yeah. And when they tested it, they were like, there's human cells mm-hmm. in these blobs, but like, we don't know what it is. We there was should, also we like, that story. Yeah, there was yeah. also like, um, like petroleum or something. And mm-hmm. like, they were like, we don't know what this is. Right. And like, people were like, maybe it was a plane crash or something. And they were like, there's no plane crash. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Just blobs of like guck fell out of the sky and it was like partially human. Yeah. Like liquefied humans fell out of the sky. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, like we've talked about on this podcast, I believe in ghosts. I absolutely believe that we 
do not possess all of the knowledge that there is to know about Mm -hmm. the planet that we live in, um, that we live on. And I think some of that includes like, you know, stuff that would be considered paranormal. Well, this is just, yeah. I mean, like I said, this is, there really just doesn't seem to be like, there's not really a rational explanation you can come up with. So it's just, it is a mystery. Like, yeah, it's a paranormal mystery because it actually happened. It's documented and there is no, there is no rational explanation. I think a thing to me as well is, is that like in the investigation, they found no, like no source. And I don't Mm -hmm. mean like a body. I mean, they weren't like, okay, well here we found like a big bag of blood or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. they found nothing that the blood was coming from. It's just, yeah, exactly. It just like appeared. And mm. again, if it was like a smudge, if it was a droplet, Minnie probably would have been like, okay, some like, you know, maybe Willie got a nosebleed or whatever the hell thing big. But to walk out into your hallway and to see a sprinkler of blood. No, that's, the, I mean, this is like, this is literally like some demonic shit happened. Yeah. Like there's yeah. just, there's not, I wouldn't even try to like come up with anything else. And I think like for me, I think this thing of this sort of like, right, this like manifestation of mm-hmm. like the black blood that had been spilled in the city of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. To me, I'm like, uh, that makes sense. It makes <laughs> like, sense. But the thing is, like, to me, it's like, um, that's as likely as anything. Even that feels like an attempt to try to make something make sense that simply cannot make sense. Like, there's no way to make real actual sense of it. And I think the thing that is like weird to me as well is that like it happened and then never happened again. Right. Nothing else happened. It's rare. You know, if you believe in like demonic possession and like malevolent spirits and stuff, they rarely like do one thing and then they're like, okay, we're good. And then like move on Mm -hmm. to the next thing. That's super weird. I'm going to have to read a lot more about that because I have a feeling that's a story I'm going to end up drawing from at some point for <laughs> something that I'm going to write down the road. I'm sure. And you better, you have to give me credit. Oh, you for have sure. to say thank you to Amelia Amharo <laughs> for inspiring this story. Wow. That's crazy. And that, yeah. yeah, I've never heard of that. That's I've neither had I. A, I've never run across that before. Neither had I. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't mm-hmm. considering that. I mean, you know, part of my thing of being like the New York Times and the Independent is to show that this wasn't something that it was like, ooh, this like stuff happened and major world newspapers were reporting on it. And I mean, it seems very well documented. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So strange stuff, strange stuff in Atlanta. Crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, should uh, should we move on? Yes. So this is probably going to be, this might be the only time in like weirdest thing history where you do the spooky story and then I have like the absolutely not spooky story. Yay. Also, just a little forewarning as I was telling Amelia before we started, I somehow managed to delete all of my notes to this story. Scotty didn't do his homework. <laughs> so now so. he's got this. I deleted my <laughs> the notes. dog ate my homework. Excuse. Um, yeah. So we'll see how this goes because I'm just going to try and recreate it from memory. But it's but this is a fairly silly story. Not very complicated. Um, and uh, it's just kind of a fun little uh, another 
another little slice of music history. Okay. Um, so my sources for this, there's a TV show on Hulu. This is where I first came across this or was like reminded of the story. It's called, I think it's like the dark side of the 90s. And they, uh-huh. have, an, they have an episode about the grunge era. Uh-huh. And they kind of touch on the story in that episode. And then from there, and it reminded me, this was something I remember hearing about at the time. So then I went back and did some rereading. So I've got an article from the New York Post, an article from the ringer.com. Um, an article from The Observer uh, and Wikipedia. And I have all these articles open in front of me because I'm just going to have to like dip around and remind myself of things. So um, we'll see how this <laughs> how this goes. But this week, I'm telling the story of the infamous grunge lexicon hoax of 1992. Okay. I touched on a year ago when we did, when I did the Mia Zapata story. I think mm-hmm. it's, um, what was the episode? It was a blob of need, I think. From, I, think I think so. July of last year. I spent a lot of time kind of talking about the history of grunge. So I'm not going to go too deep into it, but just kind of as a, like a quick reminder of like the history of grunge, grunge music, the grunge era, grunge culture, etc. Obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, obviously it was centered around Seattle, Washington. People really associate grunge with the early 90s, but what became grunge really was something that started kind of in the early 80s um, in that area. There is no, as I talked about in that previous episode, there's no like unified musical style grunge. You have bands like Nirvana, much more punk influenced. You have a band like the Melvins or a band like Tad were much more mm. metal influenced. You have Screaming Trees, Pearl Jam are kind of like classic rock influenced. I do think there's like, there's not a unified grunge sound, but kind of mm. like we, I think we talked about this, but there's just, there was a little bit of a unified grunge aesthetic and the aesthetic really was just the kind of reaction against the like the 80s pop 80s new wave 80s hair metal kind of mm. very glam very kind of la sunset strip you know like yeah grunge is just very much a reaction against that now where grunge kind of coalesced as a thing was really kind of around the record label sub pop so I'm going to talk just a little bit about the history of Sub Pop Records. So Sub Pop was a record label in Seattle. It was founded in 1986 by two guys, a guy named Bruce Pavitt and a guy named Jonathan Poneman. Uh, so Bruce Pavitt, he was like, a, he'd gone to Evergreen College. He was just like a local, like kind of music fan, kind of music promoter guy. And he started a fanzine while he was going to Evergreen State College called Subterranean Pop. And then from there, I think I think the fanzine kind of became popular around the region. And so from there, he he started writing a column for The Rocket, which was, I think, like a local kind of like local like indie weekly kind of newspaper. Mm-hmm. The column he started calling, he took from the name of the fans and he called it the sub pop column. And from there, he would like release like cassette compilations of bands. And he was talking about a lot of like indie local bands and stuff. So, with that, with doing the cassette compilations, like this kind of scene started to sort of coalesce around him and this fanzine and this column. He teamed up with a guy named uh, Jonathan Poneman, who had been a college radio DJ. And through his college radio experience, he was friends with Kim Thale from Soundgarden and Mark Arm from the band Green River and then later from the band Mudhoney. And basically Jonathan Plumman, he was, you know, he was a popular radio DJ, college radio DJ, and he was also kind of helping break a lot of these local bands. Mm-hmm. So when Bruce Pavitt essentially started taking these cassette compilations and then release and then trying to kind of professionally release them, he first put out what was called the Sub Pop 100 compilation. Okay. Uh, this was in 1986. It actually included a lot of bands not from 
the Seattle area. Like it had Sonic Youth, it had Naked Ray Gun, the Wipers, who I think I think the Wipers were from Portland, if I'm not mistaken. But then they also had the band Green River, which was like a lot of people point to Green River as kind of like the first grunge band, mainly because Green River was like the first band to kind of use the name like use the word grunge. And this came from their lead singer Mark Arm, who like early on and on I think like an early release, it was like he referred to the music as like pure grunge, pure noise, pure bullshit or something like that. And then on the, and then famously on the first Green River album, Green River's Dry as a Bone EP, which was put out, which was the first, I think essentially the first release from Sub Pop on the like record line that said ultra, it was called Ultra Loose Grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation, which I think I mentioned in the last episode. That's ambitious yeah the thing is and like (laughs) and if if you know mark arm Uh you know he he's he's still out the mark arm's still doing stuff mud because after green river broke up green river broke up a couple of the guys like stone gossard and jeff emmett from green river went on to form mother love bone and then Pearl Jam down the right, road. Right, right, right. Um, Mark Arm went on to form the band Mud Honey. And Mud Honey is like the last grunge band that's still going. Like they're still putting albums out today. But like Mark Arm is like very, like he does not take himself very seriously. Okay. And so I think this ultra loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation is definitely tongue in cheek. Okay. It was not meant <laughs> to be like taken that seriously or become like the name of a genre. Or right. Like that. <laughs> but yeah, so, so Bruce Pavel, he put out the Sub Pop 100 LP and then he put out Green River's Dry as a Bone EP. And this started basically created Sub Pop as like an actually known record label, very small, had basically no money. Just, you know, kind of Mm. selling singles and records at uh, concerts and stuff like that. But as he was trying to grow the label, Bruce Pavitt teamed up with Jonathan Poneman. They were, I'm not, I can't remember who introduced them, but someone introduced the two of them. was like, basically, you guys should work together. Jonathan Poneman pumped in $20,000 into the record label. And then Sub Pop put out the very first Soundgarden single, which was called Hunted Down, Nothing to Say. This was in July 1987. Mm. This was like... Between Green River, between Soundgarden, this is when this idea of the Seattle sound starts to. Okay. And then from there, I actually don't think it was Sub Pop, but there's, I think someone else put out another compilation from a lot of Seattle bands called, it was a famous compilation, a tape called uh, Deep Six. I think it featured the Melvins, it featured Soundgarden, I think it had Green River. So we're starting to see this like scene starting to coalesce around what would later be this whole idea of the Seattle sound. Okay. And then, of course, the band that blew everything up <laughs> was Nirvana. Right. Um, so Nirvana approached Sub Pop, uh, I think, around like sort of 87, 88, was like, hey, we'd like, you know, and Nirvana wasn't even from Seattle at the time. They were from Aberdeen, uh, Washington, which was like... Okay down south of Seattle, and then I think it moved over to Olympia, which was like a slightly different scene. And the okay. Olympia scene actually became much more associated with like the Riot Girl scene. Okay. Um, which I think I also talked about in that previous episode. But uh, Kurt Cobain reached out to Sub Pop and was basically like, would you like to put out an album from us? And I think Jonathan Poneman and Bruce Pavitt went and saw Nirvana perform at some dingy little bar in right. Seattle. Of course. And, like, nobody was there. It was, like, a couple of roadies and, like, the band's girlfriends. Oh. 
<laughs> that was it. And I guess Bruce Pavitt, they talk about this in that Dark Side of Grunge episode, or Dark Side of the Mendes episode. Bruce Pavitt was kind of not sold on Nirvana at first. Interesting. You know, it was like not a great show. And he was like, mm, we'll see. Yeah. But he, he was starting something called, it was like called the Singles Club, which basically Sub Pop was sending out. You could sign up. It was almost like if you remember, if <laughs> this will date us, but if you remember the whole Columbia House CD club thing from like the 90s, where like you would sign up for this club and then they would like once a month send you CDs unless you canceled it. You don't do, remember this? <laughs> I do not remember this. I remember because I I'm got sorry in trouble to leave. with it. I'm sorry yeah. to leave you alone in your, your <laughs> in your Oregon Trail generation memory. Um, right. I am not remembering this. I remember signing up for Columbia House without telling my parents in high school, and then they would send you CDs unless you canceled it, uh-huh. and then you like owed them. They would bill you Scotty. later. So I got, I think I ended up owing like $200 for a bunch of CDs oh, and like that I didn't yeah. want, basically. <laughs> and I, I just remember my dad being real, real disgusted with me. I <laughs> know. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Poor, poor decisions. Poor decision making. It is one of those things that like it never occurred to me to take my parents. I mean, granted. I remember buying clothes from, this is so funny. You're talking about like grunge and stuff and I'm doing this. I remember taking the order form, the actual order form from the J Crew catalog where you had to fill out the order mm-hmm. form and put like the, you know, whatever the like ISBN number or whatever, like the item number for the mm-hmm. piece of clothing and like write out the color that you wanted <laughs> and the size. Yeah. And then you mailed the form to J Crew, and then like four weeks later or whatever, you got a package with your clothing in it mm-hmm. so well, i will you say up front for the clothes i think that was a thing that like you would put your credit card information on there mm-hmm. and then i think after like you know pretty soon after that it became like you could do an order by phone mm-hmm. but it wasn't like online shopping or like apps or anything where you just immediately like pay 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 so mm-hmm. i did not have that thing of just like i'm gonna spend <laughs> spend this money well what what, what the what was like kind of diabolical about Columbia House and really was like the worst thing for someone like me who just Mm. like has like impulse control problems and also doesn't I don't naturally like think of monetary consequences down the road it's like I'll be like oh look look at the sale and I'll like sign up for the thing right away and I'm not doing the math of like oh when they start billing you later how that's gonna fuck you over (laughs) Just as a sidebar, I saw a thing that was called, I saw, I think it was a TikTok video and it was like girl math explained. Hmm. And she (laughs) was like, it was like, if my husband buys me a coffee, even though we have a joint account, that's free. That's, I'm not spending any money. (laughs) If I, what was it? If it was, she was like, if I buy something and then return it, that's free money that I'm getting back. Mm -hmm. If I buy something on sale, it's basically free and therefore I'm earning money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, (laughs) that's, that's not unlike how my brain works. And like, I've had to like train myself not to do these things. Cause like what I remember about the Columbia house thing is you sign up you don't pay anything up front you pay postage of course 
and you get 10 CDs. So it's like, ooh, I get these. And then it's like, cancel any time. But the thing is, it's like, I mean, and it's like, you get into this problem with like the online subscription stuff now. It's like, you can tell yourself you're going to cancel it, but then you never actually cancel it. And oh, then I all of a sudden, you're getting CDs in the mail and with a bill for like $15. And it's like, you know, and, and they're picking the CDs. Because mm. like, you either have to like, go in and you pick the CD. You have to like, send them a thing in time. to like, this is the CD I want. Or they just pick like whatever is like in the rotation so i would get like mariah carey which the dixie chicks the dixie chicks like you know and like spoiler alerts 90s era scotty milder was not listening to a lot of like dixie chicks and mariah carey like yeah so i'm getting these cds that i don't want but then now i owe money for it and then i'm not right. like ever canceling the thing or actually paying the bill that I owe. And then all of a sudden, it's like, here's a letter from a collection agency. And my dad finds it. And I'm like, oh, oh, here we go. God! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, long story short, uh, Sub Pop was doing something similar. I'm not sure what, if it was quite as diabolical as Columbia House. But they had this thing called the Singles Club, where you would sign up for this club. And I think it was like you pay a certain fee for it. And they would send you a single once a month mm -hmm. from one of their bands on their roster. And I think a lot of it was like little vinyl LPs, you know, LP singles that you would get. This is, you know, we're looking at late eighties and stuff. And you might be, maybe you're getting them on cassette tape. I'm not sure. So here's like <laughs> the text from the singles club, like flyer. Okay. Or like, like you're talking about the card that you filled out for J crew. Yep. Um, I'll post this in social media. It says sub pop singles club. Hey, loser. Want to find some action? Tired of being left out? Here at Sub Pop, we've just started a special club for lonely record collectors like yourself. The Sub Pop Singles Club. Every month, we'll send you a limited edition 45. All you have to do is send us your money. $35 for a full year, $20 for six months. Your subscription begins the month we receive your money. So at least for them, it's I think it was pretty upfront. They're not like luring you with the like 10 free CD bullshit. Right, right, right. And then it's like, they have the schedule. It's like our relentless schedule. And so this is from, I, I don't see exactly when this is from, but they say October 1990, Poster Children, November 90, Poison Idea. December of 90, Reverend Horton Heat. Mm. January of 91, Nirvana and Fluid Split CD. Uh, February of 91, Velvet Monkeys. March of 91, Unrest. And like a lot of these, like I don't like, actually I, Poison Idea, they were kind of like known. I've heard of them. But like Velvet Monkeys, Unrest, a lot of these were bands that were like popping up and then would like disappear. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Well, so I think they were like, okay, let's go ahead and record. They started off after Green River broke up. Their first single that they recorded for the Singles Club was from the band Mud Honey. It was Mark Arm's band after Green River. And it's the song Touch Me, I'm Sick, which is now today considered like one of the like grunge classics of the era. Mm, okay. Um, but then after that, uh, they released the single uh, in November of 1988. They released the single Love Buzz, which was the debut single from Nirvana. Okay. And this was part of the singles club. From there, Nirvana was like pushing them to like, we want to record an album. Mm -hmm. But I think Bruce Pavitt was still kind of on the fence about them, wasn't really wanting to invest in like a lot of money in them yet. I think right. it was like not super sold on them. So they actually raised our money. I think it was like $600. They're like, if we raise the money, can you just like help us, like hook us up with like a studio? a producer and stuff mm -hmm. so so pop was like yeah yeah we can do that so i think they raised six hundred dollars they were put 
with um, the producer Jack and Dino, who uh, was like the big grunge producer and record engineer of the time. He was a musician himself. He was a guitarist for the band Skin Yard. Okay. Um, but then later will become like known as like kind of the big grunge producer for okay. a lot of these bands. Like I think he also produced the uh, Touch Me I'm Sick. He did a lot. I mean, he was basically just doing a lot of stuff for Sub Pop. And so from there, Nirvana went and recorded the album Bleach. That started to really take off. And then of course, the problem with Sub Pop was like they they would discover these bands, but they couldn't keep them because they just didn't have really the resources. Right. They were they were such a like regional and like the thing that Bruce Pavitt I think really liked his brainstorm was like really wanting to create this like regional we want to represent like this Pacific Northwest kind of regional culture thing. Right. But the bands weren't really like they were just like, we just want to put our shit out. And like right. they weren't really thinking of themselves as part of this cohesive scene or whatever. So like Sub Pop, you know, they they put out the first Soundgarden release and then Soundgarden immediately jumped to SST records. They put out Nirvana's Bleach and then Nirvana jumps to Geffen to put out mm, Nevermind. Okay. But then so so long story short, ninety one was the year it all happened for Grunge. Okay. Pearl Jam put out the 10 album. I think a month later came Nirvana's Nevermind. And I believe, I'm not, don't quote me on this, but I think uh, Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger was also the same year. And those were like three big seminal grunge albums. And once Nevermind hit and was like, all of a sudden grunge was everywhere. Yeah. But unfortunately, Sub Pop wasn't really, like, benefiting too much from this because the bands had moved on. Luckily, though, they still had Bleach. So as Nevermind took off, people were like, what else does Nirvana have? And then Bleach became. And so I think Bleach kept Sub Pop. Like a float? A float for, like, a long time. (laughs) Mm. Okay, so that's kind of the history of, again, like, just very quick recap of the history of grunge. Well, this is when shit started to go wrong for grunge. And I talked. I go more, I think I talked more about this in the previous episode, uh, the Mia Zapata episode. But just like, like I said, like there was no real cohesive scene. You know, there's all these disparate bands with kind of disparate sounds. And then all, but then all of a sudden from the outside, people are like, there's the Seattle sound, the Seattle scene. Everyone thought everyone in Seattle knew everybody else. It was this very distinct culture, which in Seattle, people are like, not really, you know? Right. I mean, some people consider themselves punk rockers. Some people consider themselves metalheads, you know? Like, there was some crossover because it was a small scene. It was a small, basically a small city kind of thing. But, you know, like a lot of things like grunge fashion, you know, the flannel shirt thing, that was just because, like, Seattle's cold and rainy and people wear right. flannel. Like, yeah. that, that's literally the only reason <laughs> why yeah. people were wearing flannel. Seattle at the time was a very economically depressed. It was very like kind of working class blue collar town. So just a lot of like, like people weren't doing the Sunset Strip leather pants and like mascara thing. They were like t-shirt jeans, you know, you know, shit they're getting at thrift stores, you know. And this is where this like grunge look kind of started to become like a thing. Where it really went sideways was in 1992-93, Mark Jacobs, the fashion designer, debuted the grunge collection in the yep. if you and i remember this uh this is through perry ellis the brand perry ellis mm-hmm. he had a big runway show in new york with like all these new york luminaries like sophia coppola 
and like you know like super cool new york bands like sonic youth were like kind of connected but like i think they shot a music video in his studio okay and then he had this big fashion show where like kate moss and naomi campbell and all this stuff and basically what people forget is that it was a flop nobody was into it yeah and I think it's because, like, the everyone kind of real, like, even the New York fashion people were like, this is phony. You're taking this thing and, like, kind of perverting it from what it originally was. Yeah, know? I think that the thing is, is because I'm thinking about, like, other musical styles that have influenced fashion, right? And in a lot of them, there is a sort of, um, like... What's the word I'm I'm looking like if you take something like hip hop, right? And like mm-hmm. the fashions that were hap- like the fashion stuff that was happening in the hip hop world, when that started to show up on runways, it was cohesive because it was this thing of like, you know, now mm. I'm making money, now I'm famous. And there's it tied into like the ethos, is that the right word? Like the mm. the universe of it, that it was mm. about like getting out of a situation and getting to something bigger. Whereas grunge was very much not that. No. And and like grunge genuinely was like the thing is like it's easy to look at like to be a punk rocker and sneer at like oh people are into fashion. But the thing is if you're into punk rock, there's a very particular punk rock fashion. Yes. Right? Yeah. Leather jacket with a lot of uh, patches. I think I think that's the thing is that it was a it was a curated look. A lot of these Mm -hmm. other musical style, like, you know, the communities had a curated look. You had to go out and you had to gather these things. Whereas grunge, it was like, no, I literally have this flannel shirt in my closet. It's what I wear to work. Regularly. Yeah. yeah, There wasn't like a (laughs) costume for grunge. Exactly. And I think that's genuinely true. It became a costume. Yeah, but it, it it certainly I don't I really don't think it started that way because like I mean famously if you look at like the history of punk rock, you look at like the the Ramones from the seventies. You know this is before punk was like known as punk, but like it was definitely a look they were going for it was jeans, t shirts, and the leather jacket, the biker jacket look yeah. with the long dark hair. Not that wasn't quite the punk look, but like it, w- it, it was you know, like the it w- prototype. It was for like it. the prototype for it. But famously, when uh, Malcolm McLaren, the producer Malcolm McLaren, was putting together the Sex Pistols, the reason he picked Johnny Rotten, uh, the lead singer of the Sex Pistols, is he saw Johnny Rotten like he was he was wanting to capitalize on this thing that the Ramones had kind of started and the Stooges had kind of started back in the states. He was grabbing these teenage British boys who are on the dole throwing them into a band together these guys didn't know how to play any instruments or anything Mm -hmm. and the way he discovered johnny rotten is he saw johnny rotten walking down the street wearing a pink floyd t-shirt where he had taken like a sharpie and wrote wrote i hate above pink floyd Mm -hmm. um so it was very much it was like he's got the look i'm like let's put him in the band Right. Yeah. So, like, obviously, heavy metal has its look. You know, like you said, hip hop has its look. Yeah. But grunge really was. It was just like, I mean, I just think they didn't have the the resources to, to create a, a look. You know. Yeah. You know, like these were just they they would get off of work, go to the club, play their set, wearing whatever they wore at work. Right. You know, the flannel shirts was just because it was like rainy and cold, you know. And then all of a sudden people are trying to look at this and turn it into something after the fact. So then Mark Jacobs, who does this grunge fashion thing, and I think people just immediately reacted against it. 
Right. Both the people in the grunge scene mm-hmm. thought it was ridiculous. Apparently, uh, Mark Jacobs, like, they sent a bunch of stuff to Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love to be like, you know, could Eesh. you model our grunge fashion? And Kurt and Courtney just burned it all, like, in their fireplace. That, the, yeah, that tracks. Yeah. But then, but then, like, the New York fashion people didn't want anything to do with it either. So, actually, it, like, almost destroyed Mark Jacobs' career. Apparently, wow. because like he ended up getting fired from Perry Ellis because it was such a flop. But again, this is like part of the um, idea at the time of this, you know, people outside of Seattle trying to come up with this cohesive idea of what the Seattle scene meant. Mm-hmm. Right. So this leads to the grunge lexicon hoax. Okay. Which was one of those things I remember from the time and had completely forgot about and forgot how fucking ridiculous it was. So part of, you know, at the same time that Mark Jacobs is doing his grunge fashion, all these journalists are trying to like come up, like crack the code of grunge, you know? And all these journalists from outside of Seattle are contacting people, like they're contacting a Jonathan Poneman at Sub Pop or like different musicians or people in Seattle and being like, explain grunge to us. And people are like, grunge isn't a thing. You know, and no one wanted to hear this outside of it. So there were all these like think pieces about grunge. And like, this is if you remember, like, it was all like Gen X and slacker culture. And, you know, yeah, everyone was trying to like have their like hot take about what this all meant. And so in Seattle, people started having fun with it. So it started with a UK magazine called Sky reached out to Jonathan Poneman at Sub Pop and was like, we want to know, like, what is like the grunge lingo? Like, what are people in the scene? Like, what are the words they use? And and Jonathan Poneman was like, I don't know. They use words. And they're like, no, but like the lingo. Like, and he was like, fine, whatever. I'm going to have you talk to uh, this woman, Megan Jasper, who was at the time she had worked for Sub Pop as a sales rep. Sub Pop was going through some like, financial problems at the time i think like i said they weren't ever able to really capitalize on the success of mm-hmm. nirvana and stuff so he had actually laid her off she was off working for another record company called caroline records but she and Poneman were still friends and he was like tell you what like when he was talking to this journalist from sky he's like tell you what you should talk to megan because megan like she's really part of this scene she really knows the whole thing basically knowing like megan is a prankster and was like she's just gonna have fun with this so this journalist calls up this megan jasper and basically is like we want we're looking for the quote lexicon of grunge and she was like and Poneman had forewarned her that this was what they were looking for uh-huh. So she was like, okay. So she just made up a bunch of words. <laughs> and I'll get to the lexicon here in a minute. But it was just like all shit off the top of her head. Sky Magazine went and published it. And then Mark Arm from Mudhoney saw it and was like, this is great. So then Mudhoney gave immediately afterwards, they gave an interview with Melody Maker. Melody Maker is like the, the big UK rock magazine. Yeah. And Mark Arm was just very like careful to use all of her words in this interview. Oh my God. <laughs> and i was trying to find the actual interview and i couldn't find it anywhere <laughs> um, so this is, of course is creating a sense of like verisimilitude towards it and then of course the new york times needed to have their think piece so then a, a journalist named rick Marin reached out again to jonathan poneman was like you know wanted to follow up on on i think the sky article mm-hmm. and it wanted to do like a bit it was going to be like a big feature story about grunge and grunge culture in general so again jonathan poneman like directs him to megan jasper she makes up more words oh my god <laughs> and so the new york times puts out an article on november 15th 1992 called grunge a success story 
that appeared in the New York Times style section. It began, and this is from Wikipedia, it says, the article begins with an investigation on the origin of the term grunge and concludes with a summary of grunge music and fashion. And then Jasper's invented terms were published as a sidebar to Marin's story titled Lexicon of Grunge Breaking the Code. And it credited her for this lexicon of grunge speak, which then was like reprinted in newspapers all over the place. So you want to hear the lexicon of grunge? Yes. <laughs> yes. So here's here's some of uh, the uh, terms from grunge speak. Um, one that did not make it into the article, apparently, much to our Megan Jasper's regret, was a tuna platter, which she claimed meant a, quote, <laughs> hot date. <laughs> wax lax i'm gonna actually ask you to like guess what they mean so what do you think wax lax mean wax lax i i don't i don't know yet i don't know <laughs> old ripped jeans okay tom tom club uh, uh <laughs> because out of context there's almost no yeah uh, yeah i've i've no clue uncool outsiders okay one of my favorites swinging on the flippity flop <laughs> I don't know. Just means hanging out. Okay. Okay. Score means great. So it's like, oh man, that you hear the new Pearl Jam record, man, man, that album score. Okay. okay no one actually talks like this. Okay. Rock on is a happy goodbye. <laughs> and I think that's just like rock on, and then you like leave. Yep. Rock on. Um, yep. Yeah. I mean, some of these I think kind of got adapted into like real. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Platts is uh, platform shoes. Okay. <laughs> Elaine Stain. Uh, do you want to guess what Elaine Stain is? Is it Elaine like the name Elaine or is it no. a Lane Stain? Lame. Like a lame stain? Lame stain, one word. Oh, no idea. An uncool person. So, like, oh man, so and so, such a lame stain. Okay. Kickers are heavy boots. Okay. A harsh realm is a bummer. Mm, mm-hmm. Fuzz was heavy wool sweaters. Like the thing that's genius is she kind of knew like what they like what people's idea of Seattle was. So it's like we well we have to refer to like the flannels and the wool sweaters, so. right? And the boots and right. yeah. Okay. <laughs> a dish is a desirable guy. Okay. A cobnobler <laughs> is a loser. <laughs> <laughs> Um, bloated or big bag of bloatation that means drunk. Okay. Yeah. And then bound and hagged, which means bound and hagged. Staying home on a Friday or Saturday night. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that is essentially the grunge lexicon. Okay. Which again, one hundred percent made up by Megan Jasper. But you know, the New York Times puts it out there. It was so popular in Seattle that people started going to concerts. They cut it out of the New York Times and they were pinning it to their t-shirts and going to concerts. Um, And then a record company, CZ Records, actually commissioned this guy, Art Chantry, who was the, like, he was like known as like the big graphic designer who did like the posters for concerts for Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Green River, like all these local bands. He actually designed a, a grunge lexicon t-shirt that CZ Records started selling that basically had the sidebar from uh-huh. the, it was just printed on a t-shirt. And then usually, I think his two most popular ones had like either Lane Stain or Harsh Realm on the front. Okay. And then the lexicon was on the back, like the entire sidebar okay. was on the back. People immediately started being like, is this... Is this real? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Um, and it's funny, like Megan Jasper, she talked about when she was telling this Rick Marin, this this New York Times writer, she was just like, I kept expecting him to be like, wait a minute. Right. Are you fucking with me? Right. She's like, he never did. She would just like, she would be like, oh, uh, yeah, sure. Harsh realm means bummer. And then she would wait and then she would just hear him typing like on the other side of the phone my god (laughs) so this guy named thomas frank who worked for a magazine called the baffler was like i'm not sure about this so he reached out to her he reached out to megan jasper and he claimed that she immediately was like no it was all bullshit like she immediately caught to the fact that it was all bullshit Mm -hmm. so he went and basically published like i think in uh late 93 published in the baffler things basically saying like no this is garbage the new york times immediately got like super defensive about it (laughs) sure and we're like basically claiming that the baffler was lying so the baffler put out a statement let's see if i can find it uh this is from uh the observer.com it says According to an item in The Observer that ran in March of 1993, the hoax was noted by someone at the New Republic who had read the Baffler piece, prompting the Times to launch an investigation. But when the author of the piece, Rick Marin, and his editor, Penelope Green, contacted Ms. Jasper about it, she denied ever giving an interview to the Baffler and reiterated the authenticity (laughs) of the slang words that she had originally provided. Oh my god. This led Ms. Green, the Times editor, to figure that the real pranksters at work in the affair were actually the editors of the Baffler. So she wrote them a letter saying they had three hours to provide their side of the story. The editors faxed over the following. And then this is from the Baffler. It says, of course, the Baffler stands by its story. And we can document our conversation with Megan Jasper. Having seen the New York Times misinterpretation of the grunge quote phenomenon, we are hardly surprised that you fail to understand the nature of this continuing prank. We at the Baffler really don't care about the legitimacy of this or that fad. But when the, and then all caps, the newspaper of record goes searching for the next big thing and the next big thing piddles on its leg, we think that's funny <laughs> <laughs> so finally uh megan jasper she admitted that she had made it up and she said the reason why she had denied making it up is after it was like the times is doing an investigation she was actually started feeling guilty and she was afraid she was gonna get rick Marin and penelope green fired oh yeah yeah but it sounds like finally the times were just kind of grumblingly like okay fine and like Penelope Green, she issued a thing. She's like, well, we are being tongue-in-cheek about it anyway, but so it makes sense that it was a hoax, but, like, how irritating. And so that became, like, a popular phrase in, like, Seattle's how irritating. People are putting that on t-shirts, too. So that's essentially it in a nutshell. That is the grunge lexicon hoax. Wow. But just one little fun little fact to close out the story is Megan Jasper actually, later on, went back to Sub Pop and is still working for Sub Pop, I believe, to this day. And she is now their CEO. She's, like, the head of Subbot today. Good for so, her. Good nice. for her. <laughs> so there you go. The history of the infamous grunge lexicon. Yeah, yeah. And our our takeaways from that story are check your sources. Mm-hmm. And when somebody's like, there is no culture around this thing, just believe them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> don't try to stop trying to force it into your like preconception of what you or want like, for your think piece or whatever. Yeah. Like, wait a second. You know yeah. what I mean? I know it's a thing of like, well, we've got to be the first to do this and everything. But like, if the people in the scene are telling you like, there isn't a thing here, like mm-hmm. there's no, then you need to be like, okay, well, I'm going to scrap that story. And what's, what is interesting though, I find just when you, when you read, stuff from people who are kind of considered part of like the grunge scene is like 
like at the time they were so like no grunge isn't a thing this is something that was made up like it's a word that was made up outside it does mm-hmm. has nothing to do with us blah 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 mm-hmm. but like you know 20 30 years later as they're talking about it you do get people kind of admitting like eh, there actually was a thing going on that was pretty unique it was pretty unique to seattle yeah we didn't think of it as one scene i think they saw it as like kind of multiple scenes that kind of mixed but they're like no there was there was a thing they're like there was a seattle thing there was a pacific northwest thing that was happening yeah. at the time i think they couldn't i think that's very much they couldn't see the forest for the trees you know what i mean like they were right. they were in it so they couldn't they all knew the like the things right. that made you know everybody like individual without realizing that outside of the area it seemed to be a scene and like i've so. and like i've said on here like even though i talk about how metal i am like if there's a genre or whatever type of music i tend to listen to the most like on my own it tends to i tend to listen to a lot of stuff that like you would label grunge i guess yeah and like yeah. and it's true a lot of it like mark aren't like mud honey does not sound like pearl jam tad right. does not sound like screaming cheese or whatever and yet there is sort of a through like when you listen to a lot of it there's sort like you can tell it's a reaction against this kind of slick overproduced think, stuff from the 80s, i think that's the know? thing is that grunge wasn't really so much about a particular sound as it was mm. about like an attitude yeah and i think you that, know that was real i think that was a real thing yeah and i think a lot of the the resentment about the term grunge and stuff comes from the fact that like once it was discovered like once it kind of blew up as a major pop cultural thing it did kind of kill the seattle thing for a while a lot of those bands collapsed i mean we think about the number of grunge icons who have died it's like pretty grim you know? yeah yeah that is hilarious yeah. awesome. <laughs> i do i like i i feel like i want to start working some of those grunge lexicon words and phrases into my language now just to see how people react if i start talking about wax slacks or like call someone a cob nobbler in 2023 I... I feel like language is so strange. There is a, oh God, what is it called? It's a book that's called, it's something like, like, dude, you know, it's like something like that. And it's a woman, she's a linguist and she goes into all of the stuff and there's, she talks a lot about how language is this very like fluid thing that changes. So there's a lot of things that people literally is a big one. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of people that are like, I can't fucking stand when people use literally when they don't mean literally. And she's like, but this has happened. This has happened all throughout human history. Like as, as soon as we had human language, we started to mess with it and take things to like take a word that meant one thing and we altered the definition by using it in a different way i mean you can look at just like to go like real deep about it like look at like just world languages from the beginning of time and how like all these european languages ultimately go back to indian subcontinent linguistic bases that over time over millennia Mm -hmm. spread and then evolved into all these different languages because of like regional differences and stuff Mm -hmm. and it just shows like you know what why is spanish different than latin different than french different than italian well it's just because like each like area sort of things developed in their own way and yeah 
and all of that to say i think like language is fluid language is not static and i think that's important when like i mean i think even when all the resistance the people have to the singular they and them when we're talking about like non-binary and gender fluid Mm -hmm. you know people talk about like they can't get used to they and them and i was the same way like a few years ago i really struggled Mm -hmm. with they and them Mm -hmm. and then like a few years later it's like no you just get used to it and things change and then you know all of a sudden what felt weird a few years ago feels natural today you know yeah and all of that to say i think that if you did use it i don't know that anyone would be like what the fuck are you saying yeah i think everyone would be like okay yeah exactly cool <laughs> they might be like what does that mean but they wouldn't be like what is that you know i, know. I think I, it'd, it'd be, be more like- just for my one one thing like the so like there's the swinging on the flippity flop right and it's like that's i mean i can imagine her in 1992 coming up with that being like what's the most ridiculous sounding thing i can come up with yeah well i i definitely know that that caught on because catching on the flippity flop became a thing where it's like well see you on the other side kind of you know yeah we'll catch you later i'll see you later yep so clearly that made its way into language i feel like yeah. lame stain was definitely in cob nobbler were things that people i feel like score <laughs> was frequently used see i don't remember that one but i wouldn't be surprised yeah i think I, you, you might not i mean maybe not exactly in the way that you used it but you might be like yeah i got tickets to that thing and somebody would be like score oh yeah no you're right you're right yeah so like i heard i heard that one quite a bit yeah yeah amazing well, well there you go. <laughs> great job um as always <laughs> if you've made it to this point in the podcast and you're listening to us on spotify go ahead and find that little spot on our like the weirdest thing like homepage, you can give us a little five-star rating. We'd certainly appreciate it. Or if you're listening on any other platform, go ahead and leave us a review, subscribe, rate, review, do all those things. I'm excited because it's spooky season Mm -hmm. and uh, the weather's going to start cooling down, which we need a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's been a hot summer. So we're excited about that. And you know what? Stay cool. Stay weird. Stay curious. (laughs) And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.